bit tonight on some obstacles to serene reflection. Go through some sometimes called the hindrances, obstacles in the We won't be talking a lot about serene reflection, but we will be hinting that it does exist, which might be some encouragement. Because for many of us, what we're working with are the obstacles. Maybe we have a hint or a glimmer of a sense that something like serene reflection is possible for people like ourselves. By serene here, I mean simply very quiet, no thought, at peace. The mind not moving, wanting anything, being content. And reflection has a more active quality to it. Again, this is not thinking reflection. It's not introspection or intellectualizing. And it's very hard to separate both. But it's a quality of mind that's interested. And the interest takes no effort at all. It's effortless. And it sometimes perhaps seems as if it's serenity contemplating itself, trying to grasp itself. What I'm talking about is not enlightenment or nirvana or anything of that sort. It's a quality of mind that everyone in this room can taste. And the obstacles or the hindrances referred to in the Pali language as nivaranas or coverings And what they cover are the way out of suffering, the path that leads away from suffering. They cover that up. So they're kind of factors of mind that obscure what's already there. They prevent the, the harmony of the mind from being accessible to us. So what's being suggested is that the harmony is already there. Sometimes terms like luminescence is used. That is, each one of us, our mind has that quality now. But it's being hindered. It can't manifest. It's being covered. And traditionally in the Buddhist literature, the five of these hindrances or obstacles that prevent the mind's peace from being accessible to us are discussed. This is not to suggest that this is it. These five cover everything because well, the Buddha originally used five, at least based on what we know, these five. But then subtleties have emerged and in a sense is an unlimited number of hindrances and anything that destroys the the harmony of the mind is a hindrance. 
what I'd like to do is move through the five very briefly with you. That is to, um, for us all to participate. It's not just a talk, which has its place. And um, in reflecting on what to do tonight, as I was sitting up here, I, I know what it feels like. You've been working so hard since early this morning and you've come a long way. And for many of you, this is a very new way of life. Wouldn't it be nice to just sit back and have somebody fill us up with all kinds of stories when I was in Japan and when I was in India and all the rest of it? And perhaps with some spiritual Hollywood endings, although I did give you a little bit with this serene reflection. And what I'd rather we do is call upon your reserve gas tank. And that as I speak about each one and just hint at what they might be, you move with me and reflect on the day, or as last night and today. And these were uttered 2,500 years ago. Are they still relevant now? Do they really point to something that means something in our actual life? Or is it just of cultural and historical interest just for antiquarians. And so as we go through it, if you can move with it in a very personal way and see if any of these have been with you during the day or last night or now. I checked myself out just before starting to speak and see if any of these were prominent in me. And one was worry. And it had to do a little bit with concern about, well, I know how nice it feels to just have a talk and to not have to work. And so I was a little bit worried about that. And then I, ref- I looked at it and I realized that that isn't really what I... I'm sorry, I know it would be nice if we could all be entertained, but I think this might be a useful experiment. And so it fell away. And now we can do it. Um, the first of these obstacles is referred to as sense desire. Sometimes in terminology that's used more in the more modern and around here a lot more is the wanting mind. Craving. I found that in using the word desire and very often you hear certainly in Buddhist circles, but in in most spiritual circles, that desire is suffering. And you start to talk about that, and I've seen people become very tense. I don't know if that would be true here, as if they're going to be asked to give up their desires and or curb them, even worse, you know, just sort of become little Puritans. Or I found that it may be more profitable, rather than thinking thinking about it that way, is to explore it. That is... With all of these, really, we'll be doing that. The desire is something like this. I don't have something right now. And because I don't, I'm not full. I'm inadequate. I'm off. So I want something. If I get it, then I'll be fine. Everything will be all right. 
I will be full, I'll be at peace. And so this dynamic occurs over and over again. And so we're constantly reaching for things, inventing them, going after them, getting them. And if you look closely, sometimes what you find is that the pleasure that comes is not so much from the fulfillment of the desire, but of not not having the desire anymore. That is, you want something. And that wanting is a strain. And then you go about doing what it takes to get it, and perhaps you get it. We don't always get it. And it may be nice. Maybe it's a good meal. Anything. And there's a good feeling. And if you look closely at the good feeling, some of it may be intrinsic to the taste of the food or whatever the object is. But some of it turns out to be, at least it has for me, is that, whew, what a relief. I don't have to be desiring or wanting, at least for a few moments or a few minutes or maybe longer. And so it's this strange situation where the joy comes from not having to want for a while. And then, of course, it starts again. I don't have, I'm not complete. If I could get it, I'd be okay. I've got to get it. Where is it? What do I do to get it? And so the mind is always in search of more and more beautiful sounds and tastes, colors, people, companions, books, movies, climate, spiritual techniques. Is that something that came up at all today? Or did that just happen to the Buddha 2,500 years ago? be interesting to follow your desires sometime. I'm not suggesting you eliminate them. What I am suggesting is that you test it. We should really test these teachings thoroughly and totally. Is it true that desire is suffering? Or is that just another cliche? Maybe it was only true in India. Maybe it's not true here. You can tell. I mean, work with it when a desire comes up. Be with it and see the journey. See what the history of it, what happens to it what it does for you, what its, its job is for each one of us. Okay, clearly, this wanting is throwing the mind off. A mind that is grasping, craving, obsessed, fixated. It's not such a great way to be, probably, when you're there. And so that's one obstacle, it's one covering. Uh, these coverings are, it's as if they veil, veil the purity of mind. as in a way the original nature of mind. Um, one image that might be helpful is if you think of a, a light bulb, and a lamp, and shade over the light, over the light. Now, let's say many shades, six or seven, who knows how many you can hardly see the light because there's so many levels of shade over the lamp, over the bulb. And as you start to take the the shades off, you unveil it, more and more you come to brightness and the light was always there. It's just that we couldn't see it. 
This is one image that might be of some help. It's a covering. Another one is anger and ill will, where we want to strike out at something in the world, something that has hurt us or disappointed us. It could even be us, but we don't like what's happened and we find ourselves wanting to do something to correct that feeling of being wronged or doing wrong. And so there's anger and leads to violence. It's also a state that's not so nice to be in. The Buddha used two rather rich images about that state. One was, you know, we get angry and let's say we direct that anger at the person who's caused it. Maybe they've hurt us or insulted us. He used the image that when you do that, it's, it's like taking a hot coal and throwing it at the person. And you may get back at them by hitting them with the hot coal. But in the process, what's happened to us? We burn our hands. Or like taking feces, it was another image he used, and throwing it at a person who's wronged you. You get it all over them, and that might be some satisfaction for you, but it's also on you. And so the state itself is has some problems about it. Yeah. Okay, that's good to explore. Is is there a legitimate anger? But you see, when people get angry, we all feel that it's legitimate. Who's to decide? And it may be legitimate. Maybe the whole human race would agree that's legitimate. But the person is still who's being angry. I don't know. Is it as if they they have shit all over them, even even though it's justified? Do you see what I'm getting at? It's the the quality of what happens, not uh, whether it's morally justified or not. I don't know. There is a uh, probably everyone in this room would get angry, but perhaps something could be done. You know, in other words, the anger itself is maybe not as worthwhile as how you act in terms of that situation. And maybe the anger is even an impediment. It just adds. In other words, it's this whole um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth psychology. And then you walk out into the street and you wonder why everyone, you know, is blind and has no teeth. I mean, we're all doing it to each other. No, no, that—that's for you. I, I, I uh, 
That's for each one of us to decide. I'm not saying what to do. I'm not saying don't kill that person who's torturing the child or whatever. That's for you to decide. Actually, even in spiritual literature, it's not talked about very often because usually what is attempted is to cultivate the avoidance of these states. But it is suggested, and I don't know that I've ever met anyone who's in this category, but it's suggested that there are people like this where they're so free that they can be angry and even use violence or force but it's dharmic. In other words, it's in the service of something that's correct. Or is they're not getting anything out of it. It's not, there's nothing in it for them. I just have never met anyone like that. You know, I don't know. Okay, I'd like to just keep going. Um, and there's no reason to accept this whole scheme. Maybe it's just another moral prison, you know, to kind of constrain us and keep us from being expressive. But what I'm interested in is for us moving through these five and then examining if they occurred today at all to us. And so what? And what do we do about it? Okay, so anger and ill will. Restlessness and worry, another kind of pair where some of these, the words are self-evident. There's really not much point in going into it a great deal. It's at all levels, physical and mental. We find ourselves squirming and this posture is no good and that posture is no good and I'll change this way and shifting everything around, changing the blanket and folding it this way and then folding it that way and then sitting on a meditation cushion. No, I'll try the bench and the bench is no good. Back to the cushion. Maybe if I put some padding under the cushion. Kind of fidgety, restless. And worry often is concern about what will happen to us in the future. Somehow we did something wrong or something that's going to, we'll pay for it. Something's going to happen that's going to be very unpleasant. And when we look at many of these worries, they're the ground out of which they come a thought. The mind produces a thought. It imagines what's going to happen. And then it starts worrying about it. Very often it doesn't happen. So minds do that, do that a fair amount. And the question is, as we're moving through this, have your mind been doing any of that? Any worrying? The restlessness, has it been there with you? Um, another one, using terminology that's a little quaint now, sloth and torpor. It's kind of laziness, tiredness, fuzziness, a lack of real, alert, fresh quality of mind. Anyone know that one? Maybe it would be helpful to work with this one in particular. It's in a way an easier one uh, because I think I can find something in 
probably all of our experience or most of our experience is tangible that we can work with and understand. Use inquiry. Let's say you find that you've been... A lot of time is going by and there's a laziness, there's a fog. You're attempting to be aware of what's happening, but there's no energy and you're looking forward to the bell being rung and the mind is not clearly in focus. And that's not a pleasant feeling because we're here on a meditation retreat and we're very invested in having a clear mind. And Then it becomes punitive. Why am I so lazy? Why am I tired? Why am I sleepy? And so what can be helpful is investigation. Now in all of these that have been mentioned, what is suggested as the best medicine for them is really no medicine. It's bringing mindfulness to them and seeing them as they are. Seeing the desire, seeing the anger and ill will, etc. Learning how to do that. Learning how to see them as something that comes and goes. And that's one of the main meanings of insight, of insight meditation. Now you see it and then it's gone. Now, often that helps tremendously. Just being able to be mindful of it is a tremendous aid with these hindrances or obstacles. Sometimes it's very deep and very powerful with a long history of conditioning. And some investigation is really called for, some real, some real looking into it. Let's, let's say you find yourself lazy and dull. The mind is lazy and dull for a period of time. Why is that? Perhaps you didn't have enough sleep, but you check that and you find that you did have enough sleep. Did you have a question? Oh, okay. So that's not why. And perhaps there's a tiredness or a boredom because there's fear. Very often that happens to people where kind of fear coming around the corner and we don't want to deal with it. So we suddenly become very sleepy and bored, kind of try to squelch it, suffocate it. But you listen to your mind carefully. No, no, I don't think I'm doing that. Ah, food. Of course, I had this huge lunch. And maybe all this verbal investigation is really superfluous. You, we, all, you, we know it while we're doing it. It happens. We know we're overeating and all the rest of it. But let me suggest one way. And there are a few people that I've seen and in my own case sometimes it's been very helpful. Work with this one and you can see changes come that are, that are very helpful. And it, it comes out of understanding rather than fiat. For example, there are a lot of shoulds. Maybe one would be, you shouldn't eat a lot of food. We should all be thin. Right now, I think that's coming in, isn't it? Skinny is good. And we know it's being documented, all these illnesses that are caused and come as a result of overweight, and etc. And now here's another one being, being added on to it. If you're a meditator, not only problems about heart and circulation and all the rest of it, but clear mind. You're just not going to have clear mind if you overeat. So something else that we have to attend to. 
So you decide to not overeat. Okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to just half my portions and uh, only have an apple and two nuts at night. And okay, But you're doing it because you've heard some things. Scientists say, or perhaps it doesn't seem attractive to people, or some authority has said that this is not good. Maybe a meditation teacher has said, if you eat a lot, your mind will be dull, and then of course you can't do insight meditation too well. That's obvious. And so you follow the authority, and that's where the energy is coming from to cut down on your eating. I don't think that goes very far. Once the momentum is it's coming from somewhere else. It's a reaction. It's an attempt to please someone else. But when the understanding of, let's say, this relationship between overeating and clarity of mind is your own, that you kind of dig it out of your, your own body, your own mind, then it becomes an act of intelligence. It's very different. It has power. And it's you doing it not because of something external to yourself. Let's see if we can move with that one in a fairly detailed way. If you keep doing these things, insight, meditation, etc., you may come to really appreciate clarity of mind, calmness, tranquility, as it's just wonderful when the mind is there. Because what flows from it, the actions that come from it are extraordinary too. They're more helpful in life. It just makes living a lot easier. So we come to value that. But we also like food, those tastes. Tremendous conditioning around food. The appearance of it, the smell of it, our childhood history of how satisfying it was, how we've used it to compensate for all that isn't right in our life. Okay, so we go through the line here at IMS. And we can begin to learn. In a sense, we have two joys. One is this eating a lot of food seems to be satisfying. That's why we do it. Mmm, tastes good. But then also, clear mind is good. Well, which one do you want? Because we, if we have lots of good taste trips and suddenly we find ourselves dull from 1 o'clock until 3.30 and having a hard time just staying in the meditation hall at all. And yet we, then we remember times that, oh, when it was, the mind was so clear, it was like a, a cool breeze on a hot summer night. So wonderful, so refreshing. I want that state of mind. And I can use it. I, the, the practice goes deeper. I learn so much more when my mind is that way. Oh, but that food tastes so good. Try something. When you, when you move through the line, I'm not trying to say camp, stamp out the pleasant taste. But as you move through the line, watch your mind. And of course, you know, the, your body. And let's say something is being served that you really like. Perhaps an image will pop up in the mind. Or even the thought, ah, lasagna. And it's a good feeling. Be with the feeling. If you're with the feeling, it doesn't proliferate. It doesn't become a whole emotional, fantasy, conditioned encumbrance that surrounds it. And then you're lost. Then, uh, in a sense, you're eating a concept. There's no, you're not staying in the moment because you're having lasagna, which has a whole 
universe almost around it for you, if it does. And so it's possible to eat a meal where you're enjoying the taste. That isn't the problem. You're right there with each taste, but you then hear what mind makes out of it in terms of memory, wanting more of it, fantasies, mainly from the past. If you do that, I think it's possible to learn to eat a meal and enjoy it. In other words, it's not this ascetic, not allowing yourself to enjoy food. At any rate, what you may find is that a lot of the the pleasures that come from the food is not so much the food. There are examples from um, people that I know who've been eating, oh, let's say tofu for quite a while because that's, you know, got all kinds of good things. It's low cholesterol, etc. And it's very in. Things Oriental are in now. Maybe almost on the way out, but they're still they're still in. And they don't like tofu. And it's, it took one person two to two and a half years to and did the simple eating meditation and realized that didn't really like tofu, but liked the concept and orientalia and macrobiotic and all of that. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that our practice is to bring us into direct experience. Okay, I'm just giving some hints because what might come out of all this exploration is the possibility of enjoying eating for not being a you know, harsh, austere, grim journey. Enjoying it when you have it and yet not needing to take so much of it because we lose control we get lost, that we then destroy, let's say, the mental clarity that may or may not be important to you. If it becomes important to you, then what I'm talking about makes sense. If it isn't, then of course it is, then it's not relevant. And this detailed kind of investigation is more, it's not limited to food. It means when these hindrances come up, exploring them, seeing what they're really about. But it has to be done in the moment as it happens, and that takes path. It's not the doubt of inquiry. Skeptical doubt is more... Or the doubt of inquiry is healthy. It's looking at life and exploring it, trying to understand. Skeptical doubt, in a way, undercuts the possibilities for us. It has to do with doubting ourselves, mainly. We're not the kinds of people. We hear all these wonderful things that are possible in spiritual development, but not really for me. At a deep level, we don't don't really have that faith, that, that sense that it's that confidence. Doubt in the teachings, doubt in the teacher. Maybe it's all doubtful. Maybe the teachers are doubtful, and the teachings are doubtful, and it's very healthy. What I'd like to suggest for the life of the retreat while you're here, it'd be very helpful to when the doubts come, to observe them and see that the doubting mind is going into operation. I'm not saying that there aren't things that are not doubtful in life, there clearly are. But it can be very helpful training during a retreat to every time a doubt comes up to really just be with it. Then after the retreat, 
it might be easier to, to really evaluate that and say, well, I don't think that this Vipassana is for me. I think it makes extravagant claims and all this, and I don't, whatever it is you want to come to a conclusion of. But central for us, I feel, is the self-doubt. Because many of the people who've come here do have some confidence in the teaching, so you wouldn't have gone through all this trouble. And the teachers are reasonable. We're in some way like Western Union messengers, you know, just delivering it to the best of our ability. But the self-doubt is crippling and it's very torturing if you really are beginning to walk on the path and having all kinds of conflicts and doubts and worries about it. Okay. Um, those are what are called the five hindrances, roughly. What might help us in talking to each other about it, think if there was any one that was prominent during the day for you. And you may not be able to do this now, but maybe in the future, tomorrow or later today. What are the conditions perhaps that brought it about? Or is a certain thought, a particular thought or an action, much as like with the food example. Something happens, a particular morsel of food is in front of you, it produces an effect which can be registered in awareness. Does anything come to mind for anyone? Anyone learn anything? Are these relevant, these terms? Are they relevant to us in the, in the modern world? Yeah. Restlessness came up a lot for me, and I think it was clearly linked to um, discomfort that I felt, and the anticipation of discomfort continuing. Yes. Um, the Buddha used a very interesting image for that. It's, it sort of is, it amounts to, do you want to be hit by two darts or one? In other words, the original dart, which hurts, is what you were talking about. Let's say the discomfort in the body. The feeling. It's an unpleasant feeling. The second dart is the emotion that the mind cooks up about it the expectation, this is never going to end, etc. All the, the stories that come up. It's possible to, to pick up on that. And one suggested way of working, perhaps you're already on to that, is, is bringing your attention to that discomfort, period. And then seeing all, what, all that the mind does, how the mind collaborates and can make much of it, can just blow it totally out of proportion, particularly if you're not aware of it. Whereas if there's an uncoupling, there's an insight into the difference between mind and body, and that's one of the first meanings of insight meditation, is that insight into the difference between mind and body, you'll see that there's much, uh, that the, even the discomfort is less because the mind element has been seen through. Does that make any sense to you? I'm sorry, it's hard for me to see you. Yes. 
Thoughts are very powerful. Anyone else um, connect with these hindrances in some way during the day? Or even right now, even better if it's happening right now. Hey, uh, when you go through them, what is actually happening? Um, it's unpleasant. It feels distracting. Um, sometimes I'm able to just sit back and watch it, but sometimes I'll get into thoughts where it's hard to not just go with it and feel like it's escalating. Mm-hmm. When you're not able to watch it, what does that feel like? Could you go into a bit more detail? Any conclusions about yourself? Self-characterizations? Well, I guess it's made me aware of the amount of tension, sort of unconscious tension and anxiety that I have hanging around my body all the time. And probably in my mind. I guess what I'm getting at is that one very important thing to look for in these when we work with them is, is there any identification? Let's say it Let's say the mind is dull, no energy, etc. If you identify with that, then I am dull. In other words, we form a conclusion about ourselves, or I am an angry person. And then, of course, it proliferates, and you have a real problem, rather than seeing it for what it is, as something that arises and passes away. Do you see what I'm getting at? So please be sensitive to that, really when any of these hindrances come up, see if you haven't caught on to it or it's identified with it and as a result formed a conclusion about yourself. In other words, you've you've formed a self-description. I'm a this or I'm a that. And that's a lot of trouble comes with that. Okay, how did you work with it when it came up? Were you able to, or was it too, too, too much? Sometimes I was able to work with it and just sort of get that sense that it would pass and sit through it. And sometimes I wasn't, and I have to just sort of open my eyes. Just to hey, when you say getting a sense that it would pass, does that mean kind of whistling in the dark? You know, you're sort of like gritting your teeth, well, I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to leave in a little while, I'll just sit quietly and wait. You see that? Okay, uh, this is, maybe this is just language, but I hope this is the term disidentification, identification. If you're really attentive to it, there is no identification. In other words, you can't have both. If there's real attention, there's no identification. If there's an identification, it really isn't the awareness that we're talking about. So that can, that can be helpful sometimes. And that's why our practice, in one sense, is very simple. Remark, it's not easy, but it's simple. It's learning how to really be with what is happening directly as it happens. Could you see any connections that is certain hindrances coming about because of being triggered by certain things? I'm not sure. So looking back, what was interesting to me was 
Okay, now is a, it's perhaps a little bit more on the agenda. That is, uh, perhaps this, just our talking tonight about this will help us recognize them when they come up. There is a certain power in naming. I think eventually the practice becomes more powerful with no names, but just what is, just what's there. But for example, just to be able to say, hmm, restlessness is here. Little name tag on it. It makes it a little easier to, to bring awareness to it. I'll tell you what helped me a lot with it is just in reading some of the old Buddhist books, realizing, my God, 2,500 years ago, people are going through this too. You know, it's just... All of, we, we human beings, it's just, you know, this is what happens to us. It's what we have to deal with. Anyone else have any response to these coverings? Yeah. If you have even more negative experiences, you can really get happy. <laughs> Stick around for a while. <laughs> yeah. I experience a lot of fuzziness and torpor, I think largely because the agitation wasn't there which is what I usually experience. And I was comfortable and not obsessing about things. And it was such an unusual experience for me that I sort of sank into an ease that um, lost its sharpness. And it was a more pleasant experience, but after a while it, you know, I lost... What what did you do about that? Well, when I became aware of it, I would come back to my breath as an anchor. Okay, so I I just want to make this clear because we have real options here. You see that the mind is dull, whatever word you want to use, nothing personal. I mean, we, we all have the same mind. And you recognize that and you went to the breath, which can help. They can then give you some energy and wake you up. But what I would suggest is sometimes at least don't run from the unpleasant state of the sloth and torpor or whatever we want to call it. But bring the awareness to that itself. Don't be in too much of a hurry to go to the breath, which is always there if you need it. But 
Because a very important part of our practice is this ability to get comfortable with, this, these, with discomfort. For it to be okay, for laziness to be here, or to notice these states. They come and go like natural events, like the seasons and the weather, to become really, to develop equanimity in the face of all these things. Whereas if we're still using some technique to get rid of it, then we're not fully facing it, becoming comfortable with it. Do, do you the sense what I'm getting at? Yes, I, I was thinking that myself, but I, it was so nebulous. I didn't know how to focus in on it. Okay, it. yeah. It was so dull. So Allow the dullness to really take effect. <laughs> it made that I did, and then I'd just be off for God knows how long. Okay, it's, it's a strange one. I, uh, I remember one time in, uh, being struggling with sleep and at a certain point remembering some of the same things that I've just said, someone else said, and fi- remembering them at the, at the time it was happening, fortunately. And I stopped struggling with the sleepiness and I just, in, I don't know where I was, but it was in meditative, on a cushion somewhere, you know, and I wound up being somewhat like this with the head dangling and lids heavy, but really feeling all of it. And suddenly there was a real burst of energy. And I was like, absolutely, totally, 100% was not trying to be awake. You know, I totally went with, okay, I'm sleepy. And I was willing to just fall on the floor and just, you know, blow some Zs. I think I must have been alone, yeah. have to take certain risks in this meditation. <laughs> when you went to the breath, was there a, more, a bit more energy? Mm-hmm. And then when I was doing anything else besides sitting, it was, it was lively. I think that I'm, I really am accustomed to having something specific or concrete to focus on. Mm-hmm. It's often negative, but somehow that's an easier experience for me than a void or yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah, we all have these different preferences, and, and what's being asked of us in this practice is that we learn how to bring awareness to whatever is there. Just because it's there, we don't need any other justification. It happens that your mind was just the way it was. You may be there are no words for it. Nebulous, vague. That's what's there. Can we even be with that? But well, my problem with it is, besides the state being a fog, the, the vehicle to look at it was in a fog. Yes. Okay, at that point, you have to do some more active things. Perhaps, you know, here it's a little bit laid out for us, but, you know, do more brisk walking or arouse energy in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure.
Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of if it should happen again, I'm speaking on behalf of all of us. I hope you'll agree with what I'm about to say. It's fine to cry in here. Don't worry about us. In other words, if our peace is so dependent on each on you being a little angel, then it's a kind of hothouse, you know, serenity that we're developing. That's our problem. We'll work with it. Oh, what is she doing? Or whatever it is. That's that's up to us. And I'm not saying. In other words, it's not. Uh, sometimes people get too formal and tight a view of what a meditation setting is. And of course, we you know being reasonable. It might be if you can do it, go out to the woods or whatever. But if it should happen in the hall for any of us, so what? That's what we're here for. This is a garbage disposal area. IMS. I'm a sanitation worker. <laughs> That's what we're here for. I mean, a lot. It's not necessarily what we're here for, but it's a lot of what happens through this sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking. Things come up, and it's okay. Um, anyone else have something uh, wants to relate to this? Do I see a hand in the back? Yes, please. Sure. Right. What's the problem? Don't look for trouble. <laughs> Supposing all those mental states disappear. You don't realize but you realize it but you're bragging. No, sometimes it happens and sometimes not. Yes. Um, with thought in particular very often as the, you start becoming aware of thought and the thought raises its little head and, you, and awareness is there, it never gets to finish itself. In fact, many problems in meditation are not really solved, they're dissolved. Maybe um, we could finish up with a... I'd like to use an image and a personal experience that I had along these lines. I think it links up with what you're saying. Um, the image is just meant as an aid, please don't take it literally. It comes from alchemy. And what is attempted in alchemy is to turn base metal into gold. That's the outer meaning of it. The inner meaning, of course, is that the base metal is these hindrances, those aspects of ourselves that are preventing happiness and fulfillment for each one of us. And what is said in alchemy is that through certain flame, through fire, and through a hermetically sealed container, that is, if those hindrances, or let's say the base metal, are put in a a container that's sealed and can be burned with a flame, there's a, a transformation that takes place. And the base metal becomes gold, which is to say the hindrances are, in a sense, they're burned away 
and what you have in a way they're opposites. For example, skeptical doubt becomes confidence, but real confidence. And all the others, you know, anger and ill will becomes, say, love and compassion. Now, in this image, you have the base metal and you have the hermetically sealed container and you have a flame. In our practice, awareness is like that flame. And if I could use the analogy a little bit, let's say one of these hindrances come up. These are mental states that are uncomfortable, they're painful, we'd rather not have them, but they are a large part of our life. And in the early stages of meditation, you know, I think, I mean, it's not that I skip this step. We all, everyone who's been sitting for a while knows what, that at the beginning of meditation, it's almost that's what you're doing. You're just cataloging endlessly these hindrances parading back and forth with a few moments of sunshine and light. Okay. The awareness is the flame. Let's say the, the hindrance is the base metal. And the equivalent to the sealed-in container is the mind not running from the hindrance. In other words, because when the container is sealed, it means there's no leak. And so there's a power that that flame has. Awareness is like that flame. And when the mind can learn to face whatever comes up, or is to face it, just be with it, no matter what it is. Now, the ultimate test perhaps is death. Can we face death? You know, it's eye to eye. That's what we're learning to do. We're learning how to extend this principle. We're starting with just our, you know, our feet and the breath. But if you understand what's being said, it's being suggested that it's spreading and being applied to our total entire life without exception. And what is being suggested is that out of the, the, the flame of awareness brings a transformation. And it's no wonder that perhaps you looked at those things and they fell away. How did it feel after they fell away? Was there a little clarity in space? Ah. Yeah. Okay. And I and most of us have had so much conditioning around the value of thinking that if we get a patch of free space, it's somehow not so valuable unless we can put a name on it. Um, okay. Let, let me finish tonight, and you know we can do more of this in the discussions tomorrow because you know you can explore them now a little bit more with an experience that I had that was very helpful for me, very inspiring, very powerful. It happened a couple of years ago. There was a a group of about 10 of us who were working with Krishnamurti for about three or four days and we would meet and have a discussion for three or four hours. Those of you, I assume that many of you have read his work or heard him. Uh, To have a discussion with Krishnamurti means that for three or four hours, for three or four days, you're you find that no matter what you say is wrong. I mean, there's nothing that... So essentially, you keep finding out that you don't understand what he's talking about. Um, and we were on, on worry and fear. They were kind of taken together. And the four days was coming to an end. We had about 20 minutes left and people were then going to scatter and go to different parts of the country. And uh, it was quite an intense three or four days. You work very hard with a man like that. 
And suddenly he did something which seemed like it was nonsense. It seemed out of place, like a non sequitur. He he said uh, he just started talking. He said uh, the other day I went with some friends to a, uh, a jeweler on Fifth Avenue. This was in New York. And we went into the shop and I was able to hold in my hands and then he kind of acted it out. This jewel that was worth, I don't know, some tremendous figure, an extraordinarily valuable, beautiful piece of jewelry. He said, and I held it and I looked at it totally. Remember, we were going around much like we've been doing tonight and you've been doing, many of you, for months. You know, bringing awareness to some of these states that we'd rather were not there. And he said, and I looked at this beautiful jewel and it was exquisite, you know, just the, the cut and the, the, the way light was reflected. And he was more articulate about it than I can be. He just went on and on about the beauty of this particular jewel and was looking at it. And he said, and then the intensity of my attention became so strong that the jewel disappeared into totality, whatever that means for you. In other words, it's and then he was holding his hands this way, if you can see, as if he had the jewel in his hand. And then quickly, we were all, of course, fixated on his hands and on, the, on this imaginary jewel. And then he quickly took the jewel away and he said, fear and worry are that jewel. He put it right there. And can you see the beauty of, of fear and worry? Well, that's just limited to, you know, anyway. That is, it's the... the the tremendous energy that's locked up in, let's say, fear or worry or any of these hindrances. It's a jewel. He called it a jewel. He said, that's, it's a real jewel. Because if you can bring this very gentle, sustained attention to this fear, it turns out that that energy that was locked up in it is released and is now available to us and can be used for all kinds of things. And it was a tremendous education because he used the metaphor a beautiful metaphor of a jewel for an area that we usually don't think of as beautiful. And so it did a trip on my head, on all of us in that room. We have to, when these hindrances come up, they're not bad. They're what we have to work with. They're the way human beings are put together. For some reason, don't ask me. I didn't write this script. But when it comes up, if we can have a more accepting positive attitude, that is, this is a positive challenge, an opportunity to learn and to free ourselves, then none of these hindrances will ever be the same. Now, to some degree that's not possible until our our steadiness, our concentration becomes a little stronger. Yeah? These hindrances don't exist. They They are negatives. And negativity doesn't exist. Then what it exists is the positive side. And the positive side of fear is love. Yeah, there are no hindrances. Then that is what it becomes. When you look at fear, fear disappears and becomes love. Okay, in a way, calling them hindrances and all that, it's an accommodation to the way our minds normally are. No, I know what I mean. In Buddhism, they, they always use the negative things. In yes. other ways, they use the positive things. I'm sorry, who uses the in another way, I mean, in another way that of, of evolution or realization, as you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But in Buddhism, they always use the negative 
the negativity, like uh, mm-hmm. the, the five hindrances. Yes. But the five hindrances doesn't exist. Okay. Because the negative things means that it doesn't exist. Good. Then you look at this negative thing really, the fire, with awareness, the fire will dissolve. That's right. What is not, and what is there is love instead of fear. Perfect ending. Thank you. I saw it so clearly when you were talking about the jewel. Could we have a moment of silence and then we can do some walking?